Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Before we get into conversation with today's extremely exciting guest, I'd just like to take a moment to say thank you to every single one of you who has helped make the launch of my first book, The Four Pillar Plan, such a big success. Guys, I wrote this book because after nearly 20 years of seeing patients, I'm convinced that about 80% of what I see in my clinic is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles. What I've tried to do is simplify health down to four key areas, the four pillars of health that we've got control over that also have the most impact on the way that we feel. Relaxation, food, movement, and sleep. The book came out four months ago and I'm still getting messages every single day on social media with success stories of how the book is changing people's lives. It's giving them more energy, helping people lose weight, improve the quality of their sleep, help them with their gut problems, and even get off some of their medication. I'm also amazed that the reviews keep coming on Amazon. I've got over 400 reviews now. The bulk are five-star reviews. So guys, I really want to say a big thank you. I really, really appreciate your support. I know people are listening to this podcast all over the world. And for a number of months now, people in the USA and Canada have been asking me when the book is coming out there. Guys, the book has just been released in the USA and Canada. It's got a brand new cover, but it's also got a brand new title. It's called How to Make Disease Disappear. So if you live in the US or Canada, you can now get it at your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual online retailers. Right now, on to today's podcast conversation. I'm really, really excited about today's guest. It's somebody who, quite frankly, needs no introduction at all. I'm extremely honored that today's guest is such a big supporter and fan of my work and my book. It's celebrity chef, best selling author, and one of the UK's most vocal and successful health campaigners, Mr. Jamie Oliver. Jamie, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's it's my pleasure. So we're here in your offices, your yeah, this is studio. Sort of, yeah, it's kind of a studio kitchen. We cook here, we test here, but it's soundproof so we can film here. Yeah. Um, but outside is all the test kitchens. So every recipe that I write, so I normally write a couple a day, will be tested, cooked by me, then tested five times in the business, and then we send it out to a couple of strangers, and then wow. that's how the edit process works. So often people sort of say, how does it work? And, and it's pretty much worked like that for 20 years. I mean, it was less organized for the first five years, but we pretty much, testing was always at the heart of what we did. And ultimately, that kind of, I guess that sort of uh, understanding that there is not just a customer to the book, but the person thereafter goes shopping and buys ingredients and needs a really good A to Z kind of instruction manual to get to success. So um, definitely testing was, that's what really happens. But it, this place is just incredible, just walking through your, your energy, your enthusiasm, your personality, it just shines through this place. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it's incredible for me. And there's, you know, you wear so many different hats, Jamie, you know, we could go so many different directions in this interview. Mm. Um, but I thought a good place to start would be, you know, right at the beginning. So, you know, when you were a little boy, what did you think you'd be doing when you were an adult? Well, I was a happy-go-lucky kid. I had a beautiful childhood. I lived in a little village called Clavering in Essex, about 1,100 people. Uh, Neighbours, friends, uh, quite Huckleberry Finn, rivers, fields. Um, went to a regular state school was definitely not a high achiever, I was the opposite. So I spent most of my education time in special needs, didn't really achieve anything at school. 
got an A in art, a C in geology, and then everything else was pretty much ungraded as far as I can remember, but bad, really bad. But sort of alongside that school, which by the way I enjoyed, I mean I think the first step to a successful school is, is it happy and is Absolutely. it safe? And, and it definitely was that. It was the education bit that was the problem. <laughs> did, did your teachers ask you, hey Jamie, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think they knew I was going to be a chef because I mean only not through passion or kind of creativity or anything sort of like romantic like I just really wanted a pair of Puma Dallas trainers and uh, that was a day of Freeman's catalogues and I really wanted to drum and there was a little three-piece drum sitting in, in, in Freeman's had everything <laughs> If, if no one knows what Freeman's catalogue is listening to this, then your audience is way too young. <laughs> um, but no, like I lived in the country, so it was quite a slow life. Um, and we didn't, of course, have internet or anything like that. And distribution of anything was slow. So I, I just wanted to earn money young, like eight, nine years old. And my dad was like a self-made sort of working class boy that kind of set up a pub. And I didn't know at the time, but he was one of the kind of now I know he was one of the sort of pioneers of maybe 30 or 40 people in Britain making pubs have gastronomic food. So wow. a proper French regimental kitchen, um, buying whole ingredients, whole pigs, local game. So something that's the fashion now, he was doing all the yeah, way back And then. I didn't realise how cool he was. Yeah. I just thought it was dad. And, and I thought it was normal to walk down the stairs and your front room in a normal house was a kitchen. Um, and we always had six or seven chefs on a shift. We made all our pastry, all our meringues, you know, we prepped our fish. So it was a proper kitchen. And of course, I, I wasn't, that was just normal life for me. But um, I, re I wanted to earn money so I could buy things from Freeman's. And that's the honest truth. And I really loved the idea about if you do three hours work, that can equal £3.60. And uh, if you keep working, then you might have a tenner. And then, um, so uh, life went on and I was a regular kid. And, and by the time I left school at 16, I'd gone through every section of the kitchen at least six times and um, had worked through summer holidays. And of course, you know, three quid was never enough. When you're 14, you want 30 quid, 40 quid. Whatever you, you know. got, you want more. Yeah, man. And yeah. also, you just wanted a girlfriend. So I was desperately trying to get a chick and, uh, <laughs> and no girls were interested in me at all. Uh, so I had to kind of like put extra effort into uh, procuring my Farrah trousers yeah! <laughs> and my Fred Perry t-shirt. Come on! and my feeler uh, breakdance uh, top, which is now back in fashion, I'm apparently told. Uh, <laughs> you could get your old tops out. Oh, man, I see the pictures of me, and it was just all wrong. Undercut. I looked like a giant strawberry. You know, big, big massive lips, um, and uh, my face hadn't grown into my lips at that point. So but, was... but always a passion for cooking? If I'm really honest, I, I respected cooking. I liked cooking. I think passion is a really interesting word. Passion is a love affair. It's a romance. It's kind of, yeah. it's kind of an exponential thing that you can't stop. I don't think I found that. I think often you have to learn that. I loved it, but passion I don't think happened until I worked with Gennaro Contaldo, who I still work with to this day, and he was my first boss in London. Oh, wow. So what age did you actually start cooking? Eight. Yeah, and I started off in the wash-up area, um, £1.20 an hour, um, and um, although it was illegal, um, Dad was kind of almost gifted lots of children um, to earn pocket money, and it's something that I still believe in today. I think, um, you know, although there's lots of regulations around kids working, um, the value of money and the concept of graft and the idea of feeling good about yourself because your feet hurt and you've been doing a bit of sweat, I think it's really, really important. Yeah. And, and, and I honestly think that most of my skills that I learned as a child were at work at the weekend. Um, were you forced to do that or were you... Yeah, well, Dad was quite strict. So you had to contribute at the weekend by, by cooking or yeah. you actually said, hey, Dad, can I cook in the kitchen? Uh, I asked Dad for pocket money at eight and he wow. said, I'm never going to give you pocket money, but you can earn it. Um, he did uh, occasionally wake me up with a hose pipe and keep reminding me people die in bed. Um, so get up, uh, regardless of friends sleeping over. <laughs> so some people might think he did force me, but he didn't really force me. It was just profoundly intrinsic to a family business. Yeah. This is a family business. This is how we roll. Pull your finger out and contribute. And, um, and he was an amazing teacher and, and, and uh, 
And to this day, there's so many parts of him that you know I haven't been able to better myself or uh, improve on through seeing other people. Right. And the same with my mum, of course, because mum, it was a team effort. It was yin and yang, like any decent marriage, right? So like dad used to fire people, mum used to go and rehire them and find out what the problem was. Yeah. <laughs> so they were kind of like, they work well together. Do, do you think that as you get older and, you know, as you're a, you know, you're, you've been a parent for a number of years now, but you know, as we get older, we get more life experiences. Do you feel you've got a much deeper understanding of what your parents did for you? Because certainly I'm finding that. I've only been a parent for eight years and I'm thinking, yeah. wow, I get it now. I get it more than I ever got it before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think now I look back, um, you know, dad was in a, you know, quite white part of Essex, grafting and paying most people more than himself to make a business successful that was a raggedy old pub that then became a kind of prolific local hero pub. Um, he had two kids. I think life was, was more analogue and, 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 and the concept of community was thicker in the village then. Uh, so, I mean, I, I still to this day believe that some of the hidden learnings of my childhood were living in a pub or the concept of a pub or what is the concept of a pub and what I now know is what's fascinating and what has armed me with skills that I think have got me through some really important and really tough times is anything for everyone you know that's what a pub is my best friends were gypsies cockneys you know our customers were city boys on single malts jaguar out the back and a cigar we had gypsies we had football club bowls club we had old age pension everyone was welcome there was no distinction in area. You know, it didn't matter who you were or where you came from or your financial background, everyone is welcome. And because that was a reality, then you've got to write a menu that facilitates that. So of course we can have fillet steak on the menu, of course. And of course you'll do more of that on a Friday and a Saturday. Yeah. But you've also got to have an entry point, which is inclusive, because um, you've got to feed people, nourish people. But I think, you know, Pubs are coming back now, but we've had 30 years of pubs declining. And, and I was going to say, do you think that the lack of, or the amount of pubs that have closed over the past 30 years is a problem for British culture and British society, really? Um, maybe. And I haven't overly thought about it, but I think, you know, kind of bringing it back to some of our kind of working areas now, and then I'll bring it back. But, you know, I spent two years travelling around the, the planet um, studying and looking and filming where people live the longest. More 80-year-olds, more 90-year-olds, more 100-year-olds, more centenarians than anywhere else on the planet. How? When? Why? What? What makes this 50-mile area unique? What makes their disease rates kind of skew the other parts of the country yeah. or the world. And I think, um, of course, it's a bundle of things, but definitely one of the things that uh, is a consistent is community, best friends. So people that live in these areas of longevity have an average of seven to 12 best friends. The average here in Britain is three. You know, uh, they have a faith. So it doesn't matter what faith, but they have a faith. And so what does that mean? I don't know to the human body. Is it stress relieving? Is, you know, we know stress can kill or contribute to killing. But as far as the pub's concerned, you know, whether it's a church or a pub, I mean, just take... Some form of community. Take, yeah, take away the concept of booze. <laughs> yeah. Or religion, which debatably had a bit of booze as well and a bit of bread, uh, depending on the day of the week. But I, I, I think the idea of a place that allows people to air views, to debate, to laugh, to giggle, to build relationships, to have solidarity, to fix local problems locally. I mean, yeah, it kind of all feels like it makes sense. I see coffee shops actually maybe serving that kind of role for some people now. And, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, coffee shops guess, and cafes have exploded. But the difference is, is coffee, at the heart of coffee shops' success, is not coffee anymore, and it's not milk, and it's not the machines, and it's not the training. If you really look into the underbelly, and people might argue this, but I think I'm right, uh, is Wi-Fi. And when you go to coffee shops, they're all rattling a Wi-Fi. They're on a screen, mate. You know, they're mm. working. They're... So I, I guess the point I'm making is not that they're relevant or useful. I think they can be and, and probably will be. But in a pub, people talked. I, I don't know about you, yeah. but talking, well, that's what we're doing now. Isn't it nice? Yeah. Well, you know, a few years back when I, you know, probably drank a little bit more coffee than, than I should have done, <laughs> you know, I'd stop off on the way to work. It was super early. I'd stop off at a local cafe, get my Americano, and I'd sit there and, and you know, Days become weeks, weeks become months, and you, you actually hang out with the same people who are doing the same thing. And I, I realised, I, I sort of reflected one day that I've just spent 20 minutes having a sit-down chat with people I don't know. I probably mm. wouldn't 
get involved with and you know my my world and their world probably wouldn't collide but, but we right, ended up they do they do have sofas and they do try and make it a communal space and i think interestingly even back in my little slow gorgeous village of saffron uh, town of saffron warden you know our local pub has turned into a starbucks <laughs> there you go. so you know slowly but surely the pubs have been going eh, eh, and you know um i don't well, know I thought, I, I thought you were going to say that that one of the ways in which these guys make profit now is from all the snacks and right. all the yeah, all the all the sugary muffins and it's probably things. what I should have said. Yeah. Well, no, but I thought actually that probably brings relevance to you know what you're doing today. Yeah. You know the the Jane Miller of 2018 compared to the, the the boy at eight who's you know trying to earn a bit of pocket money and the way to do that is to, is to work in his dad's kitchen. The boy, the boy at eight was a very simple, um, happy-go-lucky, uh, nice kid. You know, that, and, the, and the same for the boy of 15. You know, I've changed a lot, you know, and... and for the better? Uh, um, uh, in many ways, yes. I think, I think my life has taken on a different kind of role now, or, or that's how I hold myself to account, I think. Um, without question, I mean, and this hopefully doesn't sound um, uh, pretentious, but I feel like a public servant. Uh, really strongly and and through books and through the relationships and stories that I've told through food um, as clear as my very own wife you know what's right for the public at large is my boss and that is a responsibility and often um, an incredible uh, burden um, and it's unequivocal unless you want to retire which I can but I don't feel obliged to um, but I can, but I don't think I should. Um, it's it's a really interesting thing, and, and I, you know that's so far away from that 15-year-old boy that really uh, what I knew I was going to do at 15 was go to London, work for three or four years, learn some new skills, and bring it back to the countryside. And between me and Dad, we were going to find another local pub, uh-huh. and I'd be doing 65 covers. I'd have a small wine list, and I'd rattle out some kick-ass dishes, and 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 I knew I was going to do that. I knew I could achieve that, and I had a very very predictably nice village, pub, life, and an okay sort of lifestyle to go with it, and I was fine with that. Do you ever sit back and think, what would it have been like? What, what would your life have been like had you gone down that path rather yeah. than uh, do all the great things that you have achieved? I think I'd still be with Jules. Yeah. Um, I definitely still have five kids because she's like, <laughs> she's like loves kids. Um, I think we'd be really happy. I think we yeah. would-, we would um, More happy, uh, essentially? Probably. Yeah. I'd like to say uh, my family life could be as happy. I think my work life, which is full of lots of nice things, and I'm very grateful for that, everything's a balance. You know, I'm just coming out of a phase of being like shot to bits for yeah. like months by press for various reasons, you know, well, mainly around sort of work, uh, restaurants, all kinds of things, campaigning. So obviously you become a target. And, and I think in Britain, culturally, like being enthusiastic and having an opinion uh, really rattles people's cage. But do you know what? Um, I, I think I also coming to terms with, and you're going to have to do this as well, is coming to terms with some people can't stand you. Yeah. And, and, and that you repulse a, a percentage of people. But I think as long as, like everything, as long as there's light and shade, as long as there's an, like, I think there's no point in having a public facing job, which we both do, unless there's enough light to wrap the shade and 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 i think like the concept of honesty and um relentlessness and you know like my my biggest superpower if 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 that is such a thing that was possible is just time i mean mean, if you just don't go away and if you just keep telling the truth like you've got a chance and i think in public health and the things that we're both deeply passionate about which is how do we make real food more accessible to families especially the poorest and most disadvantaged you know how do we not just from food but how do we make that access to education or skin on skin or training or teaching or inspiring available to everyone is should it be a human right for every child to be taught about where food comes from and how it affects their body and do you die 11 years younger by not doing your geography homework? And if you know how to budget and cook and know the basics of nutrition, will you live seven to 10 years longer? Yeah. And I know you know that these are statistics that really are your life right now. 
But also people, and I think, look, when you work in a restaurant and when you work in a doctor's surgery, you have to stand back and try and be professional, although you could joke about many things, yeah. and say this is the customer. And the customer is many things. They're right and they're wrong. They're nice and they're hideous. And sometimes they're confused and sometimes they've been misled. Yeah. And both restaurateurs and doctors have to deal with all of that and you have to love them all. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, as a, as a GP, I mean, we see everyone. We see rich, poor, we see, you know, granddads, we see little babies, we see, we see the whole spectrum that's out there in society. And they come to us and they, they trust us, they, they open up to us about things. And, you know, you learn a lot, you feel very privileged, you feel very, very lucky that actually people are sharing parts of their lives that sometimes they're not shared with anyone else and they're sharing with you. You do that for enough time and you start to reflect on what you've learned and you, and you really do start to, to, to pick up things. You do start to see that actually, you know, it's very easy, particularly when you're trying to make a change in public health. You know, people assume that everyone else has the same knowledge base as they do, but they don't. So, I mean, we mm. just did that uh, Facebook Live, um, yes. you know, just, just what, about half an hour ago. And, you know, I saw some of the comments, but what's incredible for me is that I have been sat at that practice in Oldham where I worked for seven years with a family. Their child was, I think it was eight years old, he was struggling with his weight and we went through their diet and they were giving them this sugary cereal box every day because there was a, I think it was a picture of a heart on it. Something like that. It's, and I remember saying to the parents, hey guys, look, did you know how much sugar is in this? And they were shocked, like literally shocked. And they said, well, hold on, it's, it all looks really healthy. It's, you know, healthy cereal and that's what I've been told. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that. We don't realize that actually there are still pockets of the population. There's still a lot of people out there who don't know some of the basics. But often what we're campaigning for is really, I mean, we're not, we're not actually, if I got you to write down all your wishes and mine, I bet there's nothing NASA or science-based really. I mean, science, like getting people to the moon base. It's really simple, simple fundamental. Stuff. Like truth, honesty. Jamie, um, what I say to people is that the, the principles of good health, right, haven't changed in hundreds of years. What has changed is the environment in which we're living. Yeah. It's that simple. So many people say, well, you know, you talk a lot about these four pillars. So that's my whole thing. It's about that health is a combination, I think, of these four key areas, food, movement, sleep, and relaxation. You know, some people say, well, you know, yeah, but that's kind of pretty obvious. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm not claiming to have invented mm. the new rules of health. I think these have always been the rules but, of health, but the society in the past has made it easy for us to do them. But also, you know, and I have to give you credit for this because you've done an incredible job. It's like, look, very few people have invented anything. We're all evolving stuff. And it's not just hard fact or science. It's also the way in which it's told, the story in which it's told, or the way, the lens in which you look through expressing or showing something. And I think simplification of cooking and simplification of health uh, and, and, and the area that you work in uh, is really interesting. And I think can I ask you a question? Far away. Because like, I think, so I went back to school like four and a half years ago and I studied nutrition. I got a diploma in nutrition and, and, and I've now started a master's. And as you know, nutrition is one of the newest sciences and it's very scientific. And, and you would know that because you've done seven or eight years of hardcore training. And it's interesting. Like it, it gave me fact and it gave me science and it gave me a real understanding of a whole bunch of different stuff that was proven by incredible metadata and studies. And, but I find myself not only becoming interested even more so in that and validity of data and, and truth again, yeah. but also, weirdly, it's made me more of a hippie. And, and what, the reason I mention that is because there's so much that science can tell you, but exponentially more that it can't. You know, we know about a certain amount of vitamins that we know of, but we kind of think there might be other things going on there. And, you know, so it's almost what we don't know inspires me to sort of, I think it is the stuff that is in your four pillar plan. It is like, you know, relaxation or is that meditation? Is it singing? Is it poetry? Is it having a nap? Is it having a chat? But it's all those things. Yeah. And that's why I, I detail out in the relaxation pillar. I say, guys, it can be any one of these things. It's not a prescription. But you know, what's interesting about what you, what you said as you're learning more about nutrition, it reminds me of 
something that I say, which some people find a little bit controversial. Right. Um, and that is when I'm seeing a patient, right? I'm sitting in my practice as a patient, a sick patient in front of me. The practice of medicine, I think, is art and science. Uh, and what I mean by that is, yes, the science is important. Of course, we're all looking for the truth. We're looking for what's the, the best data we've got. But no bit of science tells me exactly what is relevant for that person in front of me, you know, with their lifestyle, with their cultural beliefs, their job, what's going to be relevant for them. And when I go around the country teaching doctors, I always say, guys, look, you've got to know the science. You've got to be up to date. But then there's also something about you trying to interpret that science and making it relevant for the person in front of you. It's not just about saying, well, this study showed that, so therefore you have to do this. I probably did think that 10 years ago. But as you get more experience, you learn that actually, you know, there is, there is a certain magic in that There's human nuance. connection. There's nuance. And that's always hard. You know, you, we talk about changing public health guidelines and, and you know, really trying to create that, that, that change on, on, a, on a societal level. What I find quite tricky is... And there's always disagreement. You know, there's always like, yeah, but that's not the answer. This could be the answer instead. But there is nuance to everything. But we've got to start somewhere with some kind of basic principles. Um, yeah, we, we, we have randomly made our children in Britain some of the most unhealthy kids uh, in Europe and the world. Uh, we've randomly um, had a graph of ill health of our children from 2000 to 2018 within our lives, within our kind of decades of being professional. But one thing's for sure is we can't randomly get out of this trouble. We, get, we have to strategically fight out of this trouble if we want to get back to the health kind of um, credentials of our children of 2000, right? Yeah. Which is still, that, there were still problems then. So I think what's interesting is, you know, what I like fundamentally about your four pillar plan is really if you just get bigger pillars and you get someone to pick them up, get a forklift and take, because really the four pillar plan is about your home and your family yeah. and your children. And if you're lucky, you, you'll buy a four pillar book and give it to your, someone you love, right? Um, but I think from a societal point of view and from a public health point of view, we want to take those pillars and bring it out to your cul-de-sac and we want to bring it out to your town and we want to bring it out to our country. And, and the power of the four pillars might not be as potent as when it was in your home, but the power of even doing half as well for the nation saves lives, saves money, makes people happier, makes them more productive, makes them flourish. And I think, when, and I think even if we get off of health and go into business, Britain is amazing. Britain, when I come home from countries that don't have the NHS, uh, uh, regardless of how bad stuff is, I, I sort of say hallelujah. And, and our ancestors that put the welfare state in place, you know, bless them. And, and weirdly enough, I started a little restaurant called 15 that was a charity that the proceeds would train underprivileged kids that had kind of come out of, you know, problems with the law or just, just generally lost. And I set up in, in Old Street Roundabout. It's 15 years old now. And um, it was always a bit of the concept of can you turn a, a, a sow's ear into a silk purse was a, a slight, the first divider of me and my dad. He thought I was wasting my time, being a lunatic, this is ridiculous, and maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong. I, I think 15 taught me more lessons than yeah. most things in my life. But interestingly, like years later, I found out that half a mile down the road, unbeknownst to me, in, in a pub called the Ten Bells, my great-great-grandfather was the landlord, and he had a soup kitchen out the back. Um, and that would feed waves of new immigrants. And in that time, they would have a low alcohol beer that they would give to children, uh, not because they were stupid, but because there was cholera in the water. And apparently you'd see dead babies and, and bodies in the street, the same streets that hipsters tread today, same buildings, same pubs. The Ten Bells was where, you know, a couple of the Jack the Ripper uh, victims came from, right? But the point is, is that his soup kitchen was one of thousands of charities, and some of the bigger ones were like Bernardo's, right? They're the things that inspired the welfare state because shit was bad. Mm. You know, when, when there's dead babies on the street, yeah. that's bad. That's, that's in the history books, and that ain't that. Those buildings are still there. The arches of Spitalfield Market are the same ones where those babies were on the street. And so then we start talking about public health, yeah. and we go, well, look, guys, it, it ain't luck that the water don't kill you. 
it's legislation, law, some scientists and, and, and operators within the 28 or 29 water companies in Britain that aren't government necessarily owned anymore. Yeah. Most of them aren't for sure. Like that water's clean. Yeah. <laughs> it's clean and it ain't luck. Um, and I think the thing, and I'm sure you have to put up with it as well, is the conversation is so favoured to personal responsibility Absolutely. because businesses want you to think like that and your average comfortable Brit and there's a lot of, lot of us right Britain is a largely middle class country yeah. we can get on that rhetoric about personal responsibility yeah let parents parent but I think for people like yourself that have worked in like very poor communities seeing the sharp end of ill health which is diet related for me and all the things that I've made myself do before I talk about them with child health, which is primarily driven by the most disadvantaged communities and going on to school dinners and free yeah. school lunches and just that as a concept, you know. Uh, I, I think it's really important that good parents that feel that they should parent, that think personal responsibility is really great, I agree with them. Yeah. But you're too busy to know the layers of detail that are hidden around every blooming corner yeah. in the food industry. And I must make it easier for parents to do the job that they want to do as well. Some yeah. of them, you know, when I talk to parents, a lot of people find it hard. They say, look, I'm trying my best. But once we get outside the front door... This stuff is parent-focused. This stuff is yeah. child-focused. Well, why, why don't you talk me through, Jamie? You know, you're, you've got big plans at the moment with childhood obesity. You yeah. were involved, I think, with David Cameron few years back in terms of yes. trying to make some changes but why don't you talk me yeah, through so what you've done and also was, what you're trying to do I think I was the only civvy um, that was allowed into the sort of um, I called it the war room but it's not the well I think it might be in the war room but the room where they kind of develop these constructs for public uh, well for change he and how was that? It was amazing. Being the only civvy in there. How it was, was amazing that? and an honour. And I got to meet lots of people. And, and, and I was very impressed about how the room was run by him. So I'm apolitical, just FYI, um, and have been since I started campaigning because it doesn't really do me any favours, um, favouring one over the other. And, and ultimately, I don't, I don't think that child health should be political. No. I don't think protecting kids or the NHS should be political, but we do try and politicise it. And when we do, it just slows progress. Same with the NHS. Yeah. Same with the NHS. You know, we don't want it as a as a hot tool. Say, yeah. As a tool that these parties just chuck around and fight against each other. We need to have it. So this is in the national interest. There's a few. I mean, look, just before I kind of get into that, look, there's there's a few things that work at a government level that we can kind of look at. If if you just take education, for instance, like you know what's happened in education in Canada and Korea in the last few decades, um, the results they're getting, um, which are really contemporary and really impressive. Um, are based around a 20-year cross-party agreement on the principles of looking after Canadian and Korean kids, right? So my point is, get your fundamentals together, say what the dream is, and go and do it. Don't contradict it, don't go back on it, and just let good people do good work based on the foundations of a belief of something, whether it's education and, in yeah. my opinion, NHS or any of those other things. So right? what is that thing for obesity? You so think we when I was with Mr for? Cameron, we were, we, we, we were really kind of starting to put into place some public-facing and some business-facing initiatives. Some would be about legislation, some would be about collaboration, some would be about education, and they all rhyme, so that's sort of nice. <laughs> um, and um, it was, of course, uh, lots of ideas based on science and data and real stuff really happening. Of course, the Conservatives loves a nudge. Oh, I like nudge people. Uh, and, and I like nudge too. I think you can slowly change people's behaviour. You can slowly kind of take strategically salt out of a product. And then if it's done across a whole kind of genre, you'll never notice. And yeah. we can prove that. Um, and for instance, so the salt reduction plan in, in Britain has been really effective. We're not quite there yet. But we don't want to celebrate too much because we don't want it to go back up. But it has worked. Sugar was totally different. Totally different for, for lots of reasons. But yeah, so the, so the idea of what does a relevant childhood obesity strategy look like for 2016 was the question. So in my opinion, it was looking good because it was about reformulation, which the public never need to know about. Because what the government like to do is sort of say, we would like you. We think you should volunteer to not have as much yeah. rubbish in your product. And what happens is the big brands that have got a lot to lose will comply. And then the mid-size and small brands are erratic. 
but they also compromise each other. So you have laggards that are real problems. So often you get even the might of the problem saying legislate. We need a fair playing field. So whether it's, you know, should a busy British parent have clear colour-coded labelling on the front of the pack? Yes, it's not legislation. We would like you to. Now, I would like the kids to not get run over in the road, so can you put a Pelican Cross in there? Or in, yeah. in school times, have someone with a little uh, lollipop. You know, I mean, I, I'd like lots of things in life, but I think when it comes to protecting, you know, too much energy in the atmosphere, as a simplicity, is the problem with obesity and a lot of the drivers of diet-related disease that you have to serve. And you're saying, what, 70, 80% of your patients? I, I, think, I think, you know, honestly, when I look at, I look, some days I look at, back at my list and I look at what people have come in with, I think I can quite confidently say about 70 to 80% of what I see in general practice is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles, mm. right? You know, there's other factors. You know, yes, diet's a huge, huge one of them. But, you know, there's, there's great research on the fact that we're living in a sleep deprivation epidemic at the moment, and that is a contributor to obesity and all these other things, you know, which is basically modern mm -hmm. life in our 24-7 society. We've got all this shift work. We know that shift work is associated with health problems. Mm. And, but these things aren't going away, right? These things are here it's to nice. stay. It's what can we do to make it easier for people to live happier, healthier lives. And I think that's the key. I think for both of us, it's right. It's not about necessarily telling people, oh, you can't do this and you can't eat that. It's about saying, look, guys, at the moment, if you're trying to make those healthy choices, once you step outside your front door, it's pretty damn hard. Mate, I, look, I love a burger. Do you love a burger? I love a burger, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I love a pizza. I'm sure you love a pizza. Uh, I, I love a pint. Uh, I like a cocktail, right? Um, in a way, they're really honest. They've never lied to you about being an indulgence, right? You know, you know, if you have 10 Negronis, you know it ain't going to be good times, right? And if you do it regularly, you know it's going to be a problem, right? But I, I think what's happened with the food industry, tactically, is it's always been better for margins, uh, growth, like-for-likes, um, uh, and profit. Um, if you can flog water, and, I, and we love water, but like water in a product, uh, salt, fat, or sugar. And that's the way the world's gone. So even if you look at, you know, I remember when frozen food as a concept and as a delivery mechanism turned up at my primary school. Just as Mrs. Thatcher took away the free milk for schools, which was a public health initiative because our kids didn't have enough calcium. And when that stopped, I remember the local girls cooking local food for local kids in a local school. It went out to competitive tendering, which would mean business could come in. So it's basically kind of like a catering version of McDonald's could come in and pitch for work. Of course, the cheapest always wins. Then it was a big kind of race to the bottom. The frozen food vans turned up. And of course, the freezing is genius. Like, it's like a time capsule. It's like, it's definitely going to be a relevant part for hundreds of years of health, nutrition, control, lowering waste. But we chose to freeze crap. Yeah. And we've continued to do that for 40 years, largely. I mean, other than some Haagen-Dazs prawns and peas and chips, yeah. right? You know, we've historically kind of, we have frozen low-quality stuff. So it gets a bad rep, right? So, I mean, I've massively sidetracked. But I think what we're trying to sort of say is diet-related disease and obesity is a normal response to an abnormal environment. And I think when you throw technology like microwaves, freezing, women going to work uh, uh, in larger numbers, uh, and technology, digital tech, when you just bundle that into yeah. 30 years, actually, although humans and the planet has been used to constant change always... Not this pace. This pace is kind of extraordinary. Yeah, and that's, that's the crux of what, you know, I see as a doctor is the fact that... You know, and there's this big conversation about medical training at the moment and about, you know, should doctors uh, get more training in nutrition and lifestyle? And I passionately think we should do. And it's not because we don't have nutrition professionals already. They do exist. But what's happened is that you come out of medical school, you think you've been given all the tools you need to help your patients. And then what happens is that year on year, you start practicing. And this is what happened with me. And a few years ago, I genuinely thought... I was only really helping about 20% of my patients. I thought, you know, the other 80% I'm doing something, but I'm often just putting a sticking plaster on their problem because a lot of it is lifestyle driven. And so what's happened is that a lot of doctors who were look, looking at their patient list and going, I'm not helping as many as I could. Mm. They're trying to figure out ways themselves of how can I help this patient. So a lot of doctors are self-interested and learning bits and bobs. It's not the same as being taught 
proper nutrition at medical school. But a lot of people are learning that I need to figure something out so that I can help these patients. That's certainly what happened to me. So just to clarify this to your listeners, right? As a doctor that goes through, what, seven years of training? Yeah, so medical school for me was six years because I did an immunology degree as well. And then. You were clever, weren't you? You did it fast. You turbocharged. <laughs> I mean, you know, everyone who goes to medical school has got a certain, you know, they're, they're, they get certain grades to go to medical school. Now, I don't necessarily think that converts to being a good doctor because I think actually being a good doctor is also about those interpersonal skills and the ability mm. to communicate. Of course. But, you know, let's say everyone who but goes to medical school. Just to be school, clear to your listeners, Nutrition training is optional, not, uh, it, it's not, um, uh, what's the correct word? It's not mandatory. Compulsory, yeah. yeah. I mean, Jamie, look, if I'm honest, I think back to my, my training at Edinburgh, and Edinburgh is a fantastic school, medical school, you know, very prestigious, traditional medical school. I don't remember getting anything on nutrition that, you know, maybe we got a few hours. I can't, it, it, it wasn't done in such a way that actually... Mm. I remember it and I use it with my patients, let's put it like that. It's not that doctors aren't genius enough to embrace that stuff like at turbo speed, because what took me two years, you could probably do towards the end of your training in in a week, right? Jamie, what it is, the way I I try to communicate to the public now is that basically the health landscape of the UK has changed dramatically. Right? Our medical school training is brilliant, but it's primarily brilliant for a lot of what we used to see. I'm saying we need a bigger toolbox. The yeah. skills I've learned are great. I still use them, but I want a bigger toolbox so that I can help more people. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's about. It's about saying, you know, you know, I, I'm very, very proud of my medical school training, but it doesn't help me with some of these lifestyle-driven I, illnesses. I don't think it makes you a turncoat for saying that such an important profession um, that is brilliant and robust in this country... Uh, and British doctors are world famous and, and respected, but I think it's okay to think we can always do better. Exactly. It's just saying, hey guys, let's update what we're learning now because relevance. The, the, yeah, it's we need things that are more relevant. And you know, we 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 talk about this a lot, but when people think about diet and lifestyle, they're always thinking about obesity and type two diabetes, and I get that. But this is much bigger than yeah. that. I kind of get fed up with the obesity word. It, it just, it, uh, it kills me. Mental um, health problems, right? Mind is saying that one in four people in the UK are going to have a mental health problem at some point in the year. Let's think about one in four people, right? That's, that's a huge amount. And we know that diet and lifestyle plays a role, right? I'm not saying it's everything, right? But they are key factors. And I've, I've gone through loads of case studies where we've shown that by changing someone's diet you can improve their mental health. There was a great study from oh, a year yeah. ago, Jamie, yeah. a year ago, this, this study in Australia, it's called the SMILES trial. It's about 67 people. It's a small, a small study. But they took these people who've got depression, right, moderate or severe depression. They were already on treatment, right? And half the group, roughly half, with a dietitian, went on a modified Mediterranean diet for 12 weeks. The other group didn't. That was a statistically Amazing. significant improvement you know what, in, in the on the Mediterranean diet. And I'm like, why are we not? And I, and I lectured about 100 doctors in Bristol about two months ago. And at the start of it, I said, hey, guys, how many of you talk about food with your mental health patients? Yeah. And I reckon about 2 to 5% of people put their hand it's up. It's amazing, isn't it? And then at the end of it, when I presented the, the research, I said, guys, look, how many will now? And they all put their hand up. Yeah. Because what's the downside? What is the downside of changing someone's diet? Right? Let's say it doesn't have the impact you want. There are still other benefits, yeah. right? Well, I, th- I think obviously um, uh, diet and lifestyle can change many, many, many things. And everyone keeps sort of showing the trophy of like making fat people not fat. But, you know, and that's based on statistics and averages of lots of people. I mean, I think health and feeling good is the optimal price. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, making people... this. Just making people healthier is still a wonderful thing to get. Do you know what I mean? I think it's, it's always very weight-driven. And I'm, I'm not disputing whether that is not useful, but I think... It's bigger than that. And it's Jamie, not just weight and it's the, not the re- just calories. Jamie, the reason this podcast is called Feel Better, Live More, right, is over the last 12 months, I've really had to, without getting too hippie, actually do, you know, go, go inside myself and try and figure out why you're doing all this stuff in you know, the, the, the media, you know, going around the country, lecturing, why are you doing all that? You know, is it just about health? And I thought, actually, this is much bigger than health because a lot of what I see around us in society, mm. you know, whether it's unhappiness, whether it's people uh, nagging at each other, you know, relationships not going so well, 
right, without extending this too far, I, I would say that a lot of the way that we're acting is because we just don't feel as good as we could do. Mm. And I feel, I, I genuinely find that when you can help people feel as good mm. as they can feel, they start to get more out of life. I think like, look, this is, but this is why we come back to like, if I was a dictator, <laughs> um, um, I, I would make it law that every kid is taught how to cook and where food comes from uh, in school. And, um, and by default, the flourishing of education that can but by supporting it properly and fundamentally. I mean, like, like even in this business here, what I've done recently, I used to run charities and bits and pieces on the side and we'd have people doing product here and people doing pots and pans here and design there and then we'd have the charity and it was all very nice. Now we put the charity in the middle, the epicenter. And, and, and what changes is that everything has to have purpose or change or inspire or educate. And if it doesn't, we shouldn't do it, right? Yeah. And I think on education, what's amazing is there is no easier way to teach math than baking, right? There is no easier way to teach geography and culture and history than cooking and food and, and, and how food and the transport of food around the country has changed things. But also, more than anything, what is it being British or Turkish or Cypriot? Yeah. Like, to be Brazilian is food-driven, yeah. you know? And I, and I think to be British is driven by our food. Our national dish is chicken tikka masala and fish and chips, of which neither are British. Everyone thinks fish and chips is. That was Jewish Portuguese, by the way. Sorry to break it to you. Uh, and, and nothing to do with Britain at all. You know, so I think it's... it's chicken tikka masala, that's not British either? Well, I think the British soldiers <laughs> might have had something to do with bending a few recipes. <laughs> but, you know, we, we know uh, how and when that came. Yeah. And, and I'm not debating whether it's a delicious dish, but it was an ism, wasn't it? It was an Englishism of, yeah, of something that we kind of taken from another country and, and, and the world of food for sure no one's invented nothing everything's an evolution and, and the concept of um, poverty hunger wars um, technology travel sailing trade the slave triangle yeah. all of these things and many more have shaped many things that we take for granted, yeah. whether it's the ketchup that's a ketchup from China or a Worcestershire sauce that came through. Uh, <laughs> I, love, I love what you're saying that, you know, very few of us have invented anything new. No one. Unless, you, well, unless they've invented air or water. Yeah. They've invented it reminds me of something that I think it was Lenny Kravitz who said this. I'm a huge music fan. I think Lenny Kravitz once said that modern music is just a giant fruit bowl and people just pick up different fruits and squeeze him, and that's what comes out. And I, I thought he really, he was on, I think it was Kravitz anyway. Just, but, it, but, it, but that's, going back to your four pillar plan, right? You know, you could probably take everything you've written there and, 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 and take its journey to other things you've read in different parts of your life, right? But the only thing that's important about that is the lens and the way that you've communicated that. And, and for me, through food, like everything's inspired by something. And, yeah. and then, but, Again, it's kind of, it's the way, I mean, like, like last night, I went into a school and um, it was like uh, 120 people and there were kids going to do their exams for the next three weeks. So I'd never done it before, but I liked the challenge. Can food make you cleverer? It can. So I talked, I said, right, we're going to go science and then we get, we don't eat nutrients, but we eat food. But let's just talk about the nutrients. Like how does zinc, iodine, iron, how does that make the brain optimal? What is this brain? They didn't even know the brain took 20% of your, your energy. Yeah. You know, the brain is a greedy machine and you've got to feed that bad boy with water, with oxygen and, and all the things it needs to yeah, be sort absolutely. of sharp and on the ball. And, and, and of course, when you're talking to students about, which is an unusual thing, isn't it? Being optimal for three weeks that could change your life forever. Yeah. That that's one thing, and, and that was the seriousness of it. It's like, guys, if you're in the Olympics, this is the last three weeks. If you've got the revision in, fine. You know, if you, you know, but it's about getting your sleep in, getting your, if you're gonna snack, good snacking, not bad. Like everything can contribute to a B to an A. And, and I think even if you're looking at an adult or an employer, you know, if you've got a factory of 3,000 people, and if you only serve shite, you know, nutritionally speaking, is that okay? Is it your human right to only be given shite or given choice? Yeah. If, if there's only vending that's bad for night shift workers, will they get fitter or iller? And we know they'll get iller. Well, well this is why, you know, this is going beyond being a health issue to being an economic issue. Because yeah. 
You know, is it, I think in the US now, the, the new generation of kids born have got a lower life expectancy. The first yeah. time and, ever. And Britain, dare I say, isn't and it? Britain, yeah, I don't know. Is it, is it the same? In the, in I, the I've seen statistics that say that this generation of British kids are expected to live a shorter lifestyle than their parents. Uh, and this is incredible. It's the first time this has happened. And I think, actually, if the moral imperative to make a change in health has not been enough, right, and I don't think it has been enough, unfortunately. I think that the financial imperative mm. is going to start driving change. I think businesses are going to go, wait a minute, we can't afford this many people off sick, right? Taking time off, not feeling engaged at work, not being productive enough. We've got to make this but, environment better. But, dude, this is why random ain't good enough. Exactly. This, this is why this letter today and getting cross-party support for we don't agree in everything, but in childhood. Well, well, Jamie, why don't you actually summarise? Like, you've, you've achieved yeah. so many great wins in your career, you know, with sugar, with energy drinks, yeah. you know. What, what, are you, what are some of the big wins you're okay. hoping for here? So this is not everything, but essentially what we've got is a range of the most powerful ministers in Britain. And we've got a letter to them that says, in your up-and-coming childhood obesity strategy, chapter two, we believe this has to be an environmental, holistic ambush on bad health for kids. Like, it kills more people than any conflict on the planet, so let's treat it like a war. So the, what, what they've all agreed to is um, regulating certain things. So I'll just go through it. So from Mrs May, she's the governor, she's the boss, so her remit is just to have a really good childhood obesity strategy, right? Because she's the one at the top. Like, she's just got to say, yes, do it, I believe. If you go to Jeremy Hunt, who's uh, Secretary of State for Social Care. You know, it is compulsory sugar and calorie reduction targets on foods, and not just voluntary, but they're measured, right? So we had a deal called the responsibility deal, right? That's been going for years, it hasn't worked. And I guess our belief is it should be the accountability deal, right? Yeah. Do what you say, don't just lie. So mandatory training for GPs on key aspects of nutrition. We've just covered that, right? And I'm sure you will be a key person to drive that. Uh, a ban on the sale of energy drinks for under 16s. It already says it on the can, but there's kids not just doing themselves harm and having access to them, but also what we proved is that a couple of kids on energy drinks are making teachers around Britain in classes of 20 or 30 do a compromise plan B or plan C for a class. Mm. So that is retarding British kids of the optimal chance of education and therefore presumably careers and this, that. Do you know what I mean? It is yeah, about absolutely. the C going to a D and the B going to a C. Um, we're talking about the government increasing its investment in public health budgets and a continued national childhood measurement scheme. So just, it's, it's, some of this sounds really boring, but okay, so we used to have a compulsory childhood measurement scheme that all uh, areas of the country and kids would be measured at school, right? Uh, why is this important? We can't keep talking about how bad things are if we don't know if it's getting better or worse, AKA if it's working or not. There ain't no point in spending public money if it ain't working, and vice versa. So what they did is they devolved that power, and now it's optional. Yeah. And optional, it, having a randomly good test is, you know, we want a good test, uh, we want good measurement. So, um, well, what's, your, what's your top line target with this? You know, what would you hope to see this strategy achieve? Basically what it would achieve is getting food businesses to behave and be honest and communicate what is actually happening in the pack, front of pack, colour-coded and clear to help busy working mums and dads. Behind the scenes of food production, it is things like the fortification of foods. So last year in the world of nutrition, and it was quite exciting because it never happens, the highest powers that be said that everyone in winter should take vitamin D. And yeah. I'm sure you had the memo and you do it. What we've seen since that incredible information is no one's bought any more vitamin C, AKA the public are too busy and not interested to do what they're advised to do. And you know how vitamin D is incredibly powerful for the oh, yeah. immune system, yeah. uh, for your happiness, uh, health. Uh, yes, your you can bone get it. strength. You can get it from the sun, but we live in England, right? So what's amazing about fortification is you need never know, brother, because I can get vitamin D in your flower and I can do it by the week, by the month. And as soon as that sun starts popping out, I can take it out. You know, we can be intelligent about fortification of things we're deficit in. And also with so many people going onto vegan diets at the moment, you know, 
um, it's not compulsory to put iodine into non, there's natural iodine in milk. There's none, and I, I can't find one brand that's got it in almond milk, rice milk, uh, all the other milks. And of course, if we got kids going vegan and they ain't getting their iodine, you know, we've got issues other here. Issues, so yeah. I think, you know, but it's so, ba I mean, I know you know this ain't yeah, clever. This is basic But, this is, but this is why, you know, getting, you know, a lot of people say the government should stay out of health, but I don't think either one of us agree no. because actually a lot of these big, big, big ideas, you know, these, these sort of big concepts, they can take care of yeah. them so that we don't actually have to worry about them. Um, and, and the other thing is, is that a lot of people, you know, and, and I, like, I'm all for the, you know, eat real food movement. I absolutely am. But we've got to accept that actually a lot of people are eating processed foods, yeah, having yeah. highly processed foods. So we've got to at least make it healthy and for to, those guys. And to well. clarify my position on that, the kind of easy rhetoric is like, oh, Jamie Oliver, you sort of like middle class, rich wanker, you know, whatever. You know, yeah, it's all right for you. You can buy fillet steaks. And I get that all the time, right? As if it's disarming me of truth. Right. And look, look, A, the best food in the world has always come from the poorest communities. But the leverage point is here, they have to know how to cook. If you've got poor communities that don't know how to cook, hell happens. And, and we're seeing that yeah. in patchwork quilt around the planet. Now, secondly, I haven't got a problem with convenience or science or, or even food on the go. And, and good does not look like, like bad, flashing red to green. I'm not expecting everyone to go quinoa and superfood, right? I, I, honestly, like good to me, uh, certainly conceptually as public health, is going from flashing red to red. The value yeah. of going from flashing red to red is, is, is relevant, it's possible, it's doable. We can see difference next month, the month after. Um, but also it does, you know, if you look at public health and, and mass sort of public study, it means less disease, less yeah. people turning up to you. Yeah, and then, Jamie, I, I draw the same analogy to the, in, in January and actually this Saturday, I'm running the, the, the first Royal College of GP accredited prescribing lifestyle medicine course for doctors, right? I'm not teaching with my colleagues doctors a full load of, you know, I'm not teaching them to be a nutritionist in one day, right? This is, you know, specialized training that people get. Yeah. What I'm trying to move them from is flashing red to red to say, guys, you don't feel comfortable talking about lifestyle. You don't have a framework and how you can start using that. So I've come up with a new framework. Mm. 200 docs did it in January. We've got a private Facebook group and they're using it every day in their practice. Mm. They're putting on- But it's oh, resource, isn't it? It's resource, but it's also, it's not perfection but it's just moving them a little bit along the scale. So doctors who didn't feel that they could now go, oh, great, I'm going to use that four pillar framework with my patients. And when I don't know what to do, I'm going to go to that. And they're saying they'll love it. Do you know what's interesting? Sort of as, as a kind of operational gift of, of solidarity to doctors, for instance, right? If you're saying that good in being a doctor in the future is one that has, uh, you know, uh, nutrition knowledge, uh, and then if government responds correctly, hopefully based on what you and your colleagues kind of mold to be relevant is like I've got resource that's levers I can pull if I so want it whether it's kind of anorexia whether it's kind of eating disorders whether it's you know intolerance to this that or the other or just health obesity related yeah. things but from my point of view I know everyone thinks I'm jazz hands and it's old little Mr. J.O. doing a little program I've got 7,000 recipes that I own the pictures to videos to I've got recipes that are tested seven times minimum and they generally work um, and then most importantly all nutritionally sort of done everyone has its own nutrition kind of uh, yeah. work, but also they're tagged. So I can plug my content and I'll give it for free into an NHS system. So, so, so when this. you're in your place in Leeds or here or there or the other, or if there's a resource that people that need help go to, and also based on being, you know, because I, I don't write by luck anymore. You know, I, write, I write recipes that are cheap. I write recipes that are indulgent. I write recipes that are gluten-free and vegan and vegetarian. Nothing's by luck. Yeah. It's all structured. So, you know, if you kind of imagine recipes being like a jukebox yeah. and you can just go, yeah, one pound 50, um, vegan, Bush, 500 recipes, go, 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 go. Well, you know, and, and, do you know what I mean? So I think, I think we can be intelligent. You know, like uh, doctors are like DJs, you know what I mean? You're like, you, you need the tracks, you yeah, need yeah, the resource. Yeah. So whether that's And we meds. need the specialists to refer to as well, but we need to have that broad base of knowledge. Yeah. Well, JB, we, you know, we both can talk. We could go on for another I hour, I'm sure. This. I mean, I think, look, on the childhood obesity strategy, what we did was we went for everything from, is it okay to advertise 
targeted advertising to kids, billboard, going to yeah. school, TV, um, screens. Um, you know, uh, that's, and that was Matt Hancock that's responsible for that. Do you know what excites me most on this? Is this, that this ambition there in black and white, the ambition to halve childhood obesity by 2030, to halve childhood obesity, yeah. do you think that's achievable? That's the 2030 project. That's what we've given birth to. And, and the point of the 2030 project, which was born here, um, is also not just to get, not for me, it was to get every part of my business to contribute. And if they didn't, disappear, go away or modify. And, it's, and 2030 is a concept. If you put kids and child health first, which, as you said earlier, is a metaphor for economic prosperity, yeah. um, social prosperity, cultural prosperity, um, and, and shortening the gap between the richest and the poorest, then um, what's interesting is it means that we also, 2030 project means I have to work with big business, even the bad guys. It means I I have, have to, to work that's with how small. It means I, you know, literally, since I gave birth to 2030 two months ago, my life is really complicated. My life is quite demanding, and it's much easier now because 2030 decides <laughs> it's a really good thing. So, so I think that everything ambition, goes through that lens and goes, does it fit with 2030 projects or not? Look, yeah, because I know you agree on all the same things, and I think the spirit of 2030 project is collaboration, relationships. Um, using science, technology and data and content, yeah. new and old, to make everyone allow children, which by default allows mummy and daddy, Absolutely. and furthermore, to flourish. Jamie, there is so much we could talk about. We talked a lot, man. We're, we're going to have to do a part two. Um, but just to finish off, let's call it a part one, right? Yeah. One thing I tend to ask my guests on this podcast is, you know, I talk about these four pillars of health, and I think this four-pillar framework is great for every single person listening to apply in their own life. You know, which pillar do you need the most work in? And so I'd ask you, Jamie, out of those four pillars, which pillar do you think you need the most work in? Uh, I need to get more time for myself. And, for the relaxation uh, pillar. Relaxation pillar, meditation pillar, um, like... Downtime pillar. Yeah, well, listening to myself pillar, you know? Um, definitely, I, I, I see that clearly. And have you got a strategy to do that? 2030 says I can't really. <laughs> um, but no, it's called the weekends. And I think um, I, I, I kind of feel that I can get more of that if I, I, I am fighting a lot of fires at the moment. And I'm hoping yeah. a few of them will go out. Today's really good news because it's like, it's like the fire brigade just turned up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And the kids are in there. They're in the forest. And it is burning. But we've got a mob of fire engines now. So I feel... Like there is hope, and, and, and when things get a bit easier, then I can do a little bit more. Um, more relaxed. Yeah, yeah. But I think actually more relaxation will make you more productive. And I'd, one thing I say to a lot of my patients is that, guys, in meditation, if it, it all sounds a bit too scary, start off with like choosing a tune that you love and listen to it for like 10 minutes a day, or listen to two or three of your favorite tracks. Put your headphones on, just make sure you're not scrolling emails and social media at the same time, and just lose yourself in that music. Yeah. I know you're a music fan. I mean, no, that, no, music's really important. That acts as a great switch off for many of us so yeah. Um, yeah good luck with that I know relaxation is what let's I struggle see, with the most as well let's see if we can do it next time and the final bit for those people listening I always try and leave them with some actionable tips that they can think about applying yeah. I've got loads of parents who listen to this podcast loads of mums loads of dads and I wonder as you know we're both fathers uh, we're both passionate about getting our kids involved in the kitchen have you got some top tips that people listening yeah. who want to get their kids involved how can they do it try and have fun with it. Uh, try and get the kids to choose. Get them to flick through books and put stickies on and get involved. Use online if you want. Um, uh, if you can take as a parent, doesn't matter if you, have, you don't. Don't let uh, any kind of uh, money thing get in the way. Take them to a farmer's market once a month for their whole childhood and you have to spend nothing. Just walk from the top to the bottom and everyone that's passionate, that do it, that love it, that live for it, will, will, will inspire that child that walks down that farmer's market in some way, shape or form and it will only do them good. Um, I think um, prepare for making some mess and embrace it, but also you don't have to feel guilty about using a microwave or a freezer. You can be clever about cooking no matter what your budget is. And don't forget the best food I've ever eaten in my life has never come from rich communities, ever. Wow. It's affordable and accessible for everyone. It's, 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 a, it's a very British thing that loving food or being foodie is middle class. That does not happen in Europe. Yeah. Doesn't happen in India. No. Nah. Where, my, where, you know, my, my heritage is from, it doesn't happen there either. No. Nah. 
you know. Don't believe the hype. Yeah. Well, Jamie, those are fantastic tips. Really appreciate your time. And uh, always good to see you, sir. Looking forward to the next time. So there you have it, guys. That is the end of my conversation with Jamie Oliver. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, and if you got something useful out of it, please do consider sharing this episode with your friends and your family and your social networks. In fact, why not take a screenshot on your phone right now and post it on your Instagram stories, on Facebook, on Twitter, and tag me and Jamie and let us both know what you thought. For the very first time, you can see the full video interview of my conversation with Jamie on my website, along with the full show notes from today's episode at drchatterjee.com forward slash Jamie Oliver. Don't forget my book, The Four Pillar Plan, has just been released in the United States and Canada with a brand new title, How to Make Disease Disappear, and you can find a link for the book in the show notes. Guys, please do leave me a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on as it is the best way to help raise the prominence of the podcast and get the information out to more people. And if this is your first time, please do hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified when the latest episode of my podcast comes out. Guys, I'm always looking for new suggestions and new ideas for who you would like to see me interview on this show. So please do let me know on social media using the hashtag feelbetterlivemore. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at Dr. Chatterjee and on Twitter using the handle at Dr. Chatterjee UK. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me next time.